Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark 14. I forgot to look it up this week, but it's somewhere in the 680s in your pew Bible. Just look for the big 14 in Mark. Uh, We are nearing the end of our study through uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to finish up on Christmas. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting uh, juxtaposition of Christmas season and the things that we normally celebrate and remember during uh, the Easter season and Passion Week. Uh, We're right here at the end of Jesus' life, uh, his last 24 hours now before he dies and rises from the dead. And we're going to look at that for the next four weeks. And then on Christmas, we're going to finish Mark and we're going to talk about the resurrection. So I want to encourage you folks, um, if you've got friends or you've got family or people that, uh, that you would like to get more involved in church, that you would like to get them to know what the gospel is about, what Jesus is about. If you've got people that you want to say, hey, Christmas is not all about stuff and Black Friday and materialism, this would be a great time to bring them here uh, because you cannot do much better in Christmas than looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is really what the whole Bible is about. This, it's, it's leading up to this. It's flowing out from it. This is our, our faith in a nutshell. So we're going we're gonna to do this. I'm excited to continue and to finish uh, Mark together with you in this season. But we're in Mark 14 today. Uh, we're picking up the story on Thursday night. Jesus has had his last supper with his disciples, the Passover meal together. And, and they are going to journey out now to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray and he's going to wait for his betrayal. We're going to pick up the story in Mark 14, starting in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Uh, Jesus didn't want to die. Jesus didn't want to die. We have this expectation in our culture for how heroes act when they face death. Heroes are supposed to be cool, calm, maybe a little sarcastic, kind of like Bruce Willis. At least that's how I think of it. Uh, Like Bruce Willis in Armageddon. You guys know that movie? Armageddon, it's been a while. 
I, I assume some of you don't, so I'll give you a recap. Uh, Armageddon is this wonderful tale of, uh, of an asteroid that's coming to hit the Earth. And so NASA decides what we're going to do is we're going to send a team of uh, oil drillers up onto this asteroid, and they're going to land, and they're going to drill down and put a nuclear bomb inside the asteroid, so it'll blow up and conveniently split into two pieces that will pass by on either side of the Earth. Uh, it's highly scientifically accurate. It's a wonderful movie. Uh, and so they send Bruce Willis and his team up on the asteroid, and, and they land there, and, and as, as, as things play out, they have a malfunction with the detonator. And so they can't, I'm sorry if I'm ruining this for you, but uh, they can't blow up the, the, the nuclear bomb uh, without leaving someone behind to detonate it manually. Uh, and so they all draw straws, and, uh, and Ben Affleck's character gets the shortest straw. Now, Ben Affleck's character, he's the, the boyfriend of Bruce Willis's daughter, and so Bruce says, well, I'm going to go, I'll escort him down, uh, ride down the airlock together and, and kind of send him off. And so they ride down the airlock, and Ben Affleck's getting ready to, to step out onto the asteroid so he can blow it up. And Bruce grabs his air hose, and he rips it out of the back of his suit, and he shoves him back in the airlock, and he takes the detonator, and he shuts the door, and he sends Ben Affleck up back into the spaceship. And Bruce says, it's my turn. And then they leave, and he blows up the asteroid, and, and he dies. But that's how heroes are supposed to act. You know, when they've got the opportunity to, to give their lives, to save the world, they say, it's my turn, I'm going to do this, nobody's taking this from me, and they throw off sarcastic one-liners because they're just confident. They're just cool. That that's no problem. Um, you know, there's a long history of this. There's a reason why they use that type in Armageddon. There's a long history of this. Socrates was like this. Socrates lived a long time ago, ancient Greece, and the people of Athens, uh, the leaders thought that he was corrupting the youth of Athens. So they convicted him of death, and they gave him a cup of hemlock poison that he was supposed to drink. And he got the cup of hemlock poison, he had his friends gathered around, and he, he just cracked some jokes. He says, can I toast somebody with this? Is that all right? Is that acceptable? He, he drinks down the hemlock poison. His friends start to cry. He tells them to stop it because they're acting like women. And then to the very end, he just keeps throwing out these one-liners, these sarcastic, witty uh, quips and puns until he dies. He's like the Bruce Willis of ancient Greece. Okay, it's Socrates. Uh, but it's not just uh, in secular history or movies. As you read your Bible, you see people like this too. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing at the fiery furnace, Daniel's friends, and, and they're going to get thrown in. They say to the king, you know, God can save us. We're not going to bow down to your statue. And even if God doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow down. And the king throws them in, and God saves them, and they, and they come out. But they're bold, they're confident in the face of death. Or Paul in, in Philippians 1.21 says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. Or even after the biblical period, you've got martyrs throughout church history who are bold, not afraid to die. There's a guy named Polycarp. Stuck, tuck that one away if you're looking for baby names. Uh, Polycarp. He lived in the, like the second century. He was about 80-some years old when the Romans finally came for him. And they told him that he needed to recant of his faith uh, or, that they or they would burn him at the stake. Uh, and he said to the guy who was telling him this, he said, your fire lasts but a little while, while the fires of judgment for the ungodly burn forever. Come, do what you will. Essentially saying, bring it on. Do your worst. Or centuries later, in England, there were two guys, uh, Hugh Latimer and Mr. Ridley. They were uh, under the reign of Bloody Mary in England, this Catholic queen who was uh, persecuting the Protestants. 
and they're standing there getting ready to be burned at the stake, and Hugh Latimer says to Mr. Ridley, play the man, Mr. Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. So that's what we expect heroes to do in the face of death. We expect them to, to, to be bold and confident, to cast off these powerful one-liners that get enshrined in history and say, oh, what a hero. That's how heroes face death. But we look at Jesus in this passage, and it's kind of shocking. But Jesus didn't want to die. You don't see Jesus here calm, and collected, dry, gallows humor. No, what we see is a Jesus who doesn't want to die. Um, it's, it's a new thing. It's a new, it's a change. He's been talking about his death for a while in much more of that heroic mode. Uh, he's been talking about his death since chapter 8, or, well, I mean explicitly. Uh, chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 10, verse 32, these three predictions, very clear. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over by the chief priests and the scribes. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans. They're going to spit on me and flog me and kill me. And the third day I'm going to rise. And each time he says this, it, it, there's no problem. doesn't bat an eyelash. The disciples are kind of weirded out. But he, he just says, this is what's going to happen. It's going to ha I can deal with it. I'm going to go. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. But here, it's the final moment. right? The, the next thing that's going to happen is the betrayal. It's the point of no return. It's upon him. He's seen it coming for a long ways, but now it's here, and, and it's, its eminence in his life causes him to have an emotional, a, a profound emotional response. Look with me at verse 33. It says, He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34, he says, his soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Verse 35, he goes to pray and he throws himself on the ground. Jesus didn't want to die. He's praying to God, if it's possible, can you please change the plan? Now just imagine for a moment, you're watching Armageddon. Bruce Willis has taken the detonator. He's shoved Ben Affleck back up the airlock. He's said, I'm going to do this. And then he thinks, wait a minute. I, I don't want to die. He throws the detonator down. He goes over to the hull of the spaceship. He starts pounding on it and says, don't leave me. I've had second thoughts. Is there any other way? Are you sure that it's broken, that we can't change the plan right now? That's not very heroic, is it? That's not very Bruce Willis. And yet that's what we've got Jesus doing here. He gets to the crisis point of his mission and he just flat out says, I don't want to do it. Now why would Jesus say that? Okay, that, that should cause a bit of a crisis for us. How could, the, the people, how could Socrates be calmer in the face of death than Jesus? How could the followers of Jesus be calmer in the face of death than Jesus. Why didn't Jesus want to die? Well, it's because his death wasn't an ordinary death. Okay? His death wasn't an ordinary death. He's not concerned about the cross and the physical pain and the beatings and the spitting, though that will be horrible. He could handle that. What he can see 
coming down the road is not just the suffering that, of the physical suffering and the, the emotional torment of, of the shame and, and the, the humiliation of the cross. What he can see coming down the road is that he's going to be bearing the weight of the sin of the world. That he's going to experience the full wrath of God. And when he sees that coming down on him like a freight train, he says, I don't want that. Uh, we know this is what he's thinking because of what he says in verse 36. He says to his father, please remove this cup from me. Now the cup, the cup he's talking about, the cup is a very common, prevalent biblical image for the wrath of God. I'll, I'll show you at least two places so you know I'm not making that up. One of them is Psalm 75. It's just a good example of how the Bible uses this expression about the cup of the Lord to talk about his wrath. Psalm 75 is a psalm of judgment where God is speaking about the judgment that he's going to bring against the wicked. I'm going to say Psalm 75, verse 7. It says, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Okay, so there's this cup the cup of the Lord, it's filled with his wrath. He pours it out on the wicked. The wicked drink it down, which means the wicked experience all the pain and suffering and wrath of God, the just judgment against their sins. That's Psalm 75, verse 8. Revelation 14 picks up on this theme as well. Revelation 14 speaks of the people who do not worship God, but instead bow down and worship the beast. And in Revelation 14... In verse 10, let's start in verse 9, um, it says, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, the same image doesn't just show up in those two places. It's all over. You could, if you want some homework for later, you could look at uh, Jeremiah 25 or Isaiah 51, many other places. Trace some cross-references out. You'll see it. But this is what Jesus saw coming. This is the cup. He's saying, Lord, would you take this cup from me? This cup of wrath, this burning, you know, described in terms of sulfur and burning fire, experienced the judgment of God. He says, this is what I see coming, and I don't want to drink it. Now he does, and this helps us understand what happens at the cross. We'll talk about this more in a few weeks, but over a couple chapters, or a chapter in Mark 15, uh, 34, when Jesus is, sitting, is hanging there on the cross, and right before he says it's finished, the last thing he says is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's him right there experiencing this cup of wrath, this judgment of God poured out on him, Jesus being separated from the Father, because in that moment, all the sins of the world, of you and of me, all the things that Jesus never did, the punishment for all that we have done gets placed on him right then. And he's separated, forsaken by God. You know, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who for all eternity has had perfect fellowship with his Father, never done anything wrong, always enjoyed this great relationship, in that moment bears all of the hell that we deserve. And he sees that coming in the garden. He says, I don't want that. 
You know, that's why Jesus didn't want to die. He wasn't afraid of the pain of the cross. He wasn't afraid of getting whipped as bad as that is. He saw his mission in perfect clarity. And he realized that he could not handle that on his own. And so he prays. What do you do when you face suffering like that? You know, what, what does a person do when you are overwhelmed with such suffering? What option does Jesus have? And to a lesser extent, what options do we have when we face suffering that seems to overwhelm us? Well, as we look at the rest of the passage, I think that there's three responses that are presented to us. Three possible responses to this suffering. Two of them are ones the disciples do, which I would not recommend. And one of them is what Jesus models for us. So let's look at those together. The first option when you're faced with suffering and the pain of suffering is to just run away, to run away from the pain of suffering. Uh, so this mindset says, well, there's a problem, there's, there's suffering, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow, so what I need to do is to get out as quickly as possible. So there's a problem, what do I have to do to get away from this problem? How do I get out? So I've got trouble at work, uh, I'm how can I change jobs to get to a new job where I don't have that problem again? I've got a bad boss, how can I transfer out so I don't have that problem? Or you've got trouble in your marriage or in a relationship, and you think, um, I, I've got problems here, it's not fun to be with this other person, so I'm going to isolate myself. Uh, I'm going to move away, I'm not going to be with that person. You know, either you isolate yourself by watching television or getting a divorce or you know, whatever, you, you run away from that problem, you break off the relationship. Um, or you're uh, having a problem at church. Uh, in a church, you know, this never happens, right? But you have a problem at church. And you say, well, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm just going to go to a different church where all the people are perfect. You know, because somehow I got in the one church where there's sinners. Uh, but no, but you know, we run away from problems. We run away from the pain of suffering. So that's our answer. When there's suffering, we run away. Now, the disciples do this. They don't think they're going to do it, but they do. In verse 27, Jesus says, uh, you will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They say, no, 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 we're not. But if you look ahead in verse 50, they do. Verse 50, they all left him and fled. When push comes to shove and the bad guys show up with swords, they run away. They say, I don't want any part of this pain. I don't want any part of this suffering. I'm not going to try to endure or do anything uh, that I said I was going to do. I'm going to get out of here. Try to run away. Now they talked a good game in verse 29, and that's normal. You know, Peter, and, and Peter gets the brunt of the, the criticism from us, but, but notice, they all say they're going to stick around. In verse 31, they all said the same. They all talk a big game. They're all confident in themselves before the crisis happens. Yes, I'm strong enough. Yes, I can handle this. Yes, I'm going to endure. But they're weak. And we're weak too. If this is all you've got, if all you've got is just your own strength saying, I'm going to handle it, I'll be fine when trouble comes. If that's all you've got, then you're probably just going to run away. Okay, it's not sufficient. The other thing that they do, so they run away from the pain of suffering. The other thing they do is they, they ignore the pain of suffering. This is another option that we have. Uh, this is kind of the Buddhist approach. 
The Buddhist approach that says, you know, just the problem with life is that you have all these desires and you feel pain, so you need to detach yourself and you ignore the pain. Uh, it's also, strangely enough, kind of the country music approach. Uh, it says, well, you're going through pain, well, just suck it up. Okay, that, that's life. Just deal with it. Quit whining. The problem is not that you experience the pain, the problem is that you're whining about the pain. Just ignore it. Just move on. So if your marriage isn't going well, we'll suck it up. You know, that's life. People have bad marriages. Deal with it. Uh, work not doing well, just, well, suck it up. Deal with it. That's, that's life. Um, get through it. Just ignore the problem. You know, maybe it'll go away or, or maybe it won't, but whether it does or doesn't, you just have to deal with it. You've got some deep sorrow in your life, some emotional pain. Well, don't, don't try to express that emotion. Don't try to, to do anything productive with it. Just suppress it. Just ignore it. Just move on. Quit whining. See, in some cases, so, some people run away from pain, but sometimes the pain seems so big or the problem seems so huge that you don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to run away from it, so you just ignore it. You just hope maybe it goes away. And we see that in the disciples. Jesus takes his top three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he tells them, he tells them in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Jesus gets his three best guys together and he tells them, I am going through a really big crisis here. I am sorrowful even to the point of death. Come with me. And then he goes. And he doesn't run far away like they don't know what's going on. He goes like a stone's throw away and he falls on the ground and he prays and he prays and he's crying out this prayer, Lord, please remove this cup from me. And so his disciples, because they're great friends, they, they come up to Jesus and they, they empathize with him and they say, oh, you've got a problem. You're going through some tough stuff, aren't you? And they just sit there and they pray with him and they hold his hand and they encourage him because that's what people do, right? They deal with the problems. No. The disciples see Jesus, who has just told them, I'm going through a really big crisis. He falls down, he prays on the ground. The disciples say, I can't deal with this, I'm going to sleep. Surely Jesus will be able to handle this. Uh, I don't know what to do here. Uh, I'm out of my league. I can't run away. He told me to stay here, so I'm really tired. I'm just going to go to sleep and hope this problem takes care of itself, because after all, it's Jesus. He can probably, you know, he can probably handle this. Just ignore the problem. Jesus says to them, watch and pray, but they fall asleep. See, these are options that we take a lot when we are encountering pain of suffering or sorrow. We don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to deal with it well, so we either run away or we ignore the problem and hope it takes care of itself. But Jesus models for us a different way. He says we deal with our pain of suffering by praying. So the third option is we can pray honestly and submissively. And don't, don't miss this fact. It's, it's pretty obvious, but we gloss right over it. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do when he was overwhelmed, when he experienced the pain of sorrow, his soul was overwhelmed? What did he do? He prayed. Okay, he prayed. He didn't do some miracle. He didn't do something extraordinary. He prayed. He was overwhelmed, and he went off by himself, and he prayed. And he told his disciples to pray. In verse 38, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. He says, this is what you do. 
when you are overwhelmed, when you've got good intentions, your spirit is willing, you've got good intentions, you want to deal with the problem, but you don't know what to do. You're sorrowful to the point of death. You have no recourse. You don't know what to do. He says, here's what you do. You pray. You pray. Why? Because we're weak. See, prayer doesn't seem like that much. It's, I mean, we're, we're people of action. We're, we're, we're Bruce Willis. We want to do things. We want to we have, you know, what can I do to make this better? And Jesus says, the problem is that you can't do anything. And you need to admit that. So the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You've got great intentions, Peter. You want to stand by me. You want to do what's right. You want to go to the, go to the death for me rather than deny me. You've got great heart. You're in the right place. But that's not good enough. Because you're a human being. Because you are a frail, weak, sinful human being. You, you might have the best intentions in the world, but if you're just relying on yourself, you're going to fail. So he says, stop relying on yourself. Start relying on God. How do you do that? You pray. You pray. So I want you to get this. Um, Jesus, Jesus, wasn't strong enough to make it through this crisis on his own. He had to pray. Okay. Did, did that register with you? Jesus wasn't strong enough to make it through this crisis on his own. He had to pray. So why do you think that you can do it on your own? Why do you, why do you think that you can, han- like that, that you can handle being, uh, you know, um, having problems and, and dealing with on your own? Why do you think that you can just solve it by running away or you can solve it by ignoring it or, or even you can solve it by in your own strength trying to figure out what's going on and tackle the problem on your own? You can't do it. Look, Jesus, this is where the, the humanity of Christ just smacks us in the face. He was a human being like you and me. He had weak flesh. What did he do when he encountered the weakness of his flesh and he realized, I don't want to obey God right now? He prayed. If he had to pray, so do you. So do I. Now, how did he pray? He prayed honestly. He prayed honestly. Jesus flat out said, I don't want to do it. So this guards us from this problem of ignoring the pain of suffering. He acknowledged the pain. He says in verse 36, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Do you you get what he's asking here? Do you get how shocking this is? This plan of salvation is not something that that God, you know, just cooked up like a week before and said, hey, Jesus, would you mind going to the cross now to kind of save the world? This has been planned from eternity. You know, from the very least, in Genesis 3.15, we have the first promise of a Savior who's going to come and reverse the curse, and throughout the entire Old Testament and the New Testament, it's always been leading up to this moment. The whole Bible, all of human history has been building up to this moment. Jesus has been on board with this from the beginning, saying, yes, this is the plan. I'm going to do it. I'm going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. This is how it's going to go. And here, at the last minute, he he says to God, is there any other way? Do we we not consider another option? I, I know you can do anything, and I just really don't want to do this. You know, if I were writing the story, God would respond and be like, what are you talking about? We had this worked out. You agreed we were going to do this. You have said that, yes, you're, you're signed up for this. You can't back out now. We've told everybody. 
We've announced to the whole world. You, you've told your disciples, this is how it's going to go. You can't back out now. What are you doing? And yet Jesus feels the freedom to just honestly say to his father, this is what I'm feeling. I know this is going to rock your world, but this is what I'm feeling. I know this isn't a responsible thing to say. That if this is really what happens, then I'm going to screw up everything, but this is what I'm feeling. And he says it. So again, this is encouraging for us. Because if, if Jesus can say this to God the Father, then it frees us up to say anything. That there's, there's nothing that's going to be more disappointing to God than this. You know, there's nothing that has more potential to disappoint God than this. I mean, you think that you're going to disappoint God by, by letting him know how you really feel? Um, Jesus already told him that he didn't want to go to the cross. Okay, you can't top that. So you wake up on Sunday morning, and you think, I just, I don't feel it. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel happy. I don't feel spiritual. I don't want to go to that place, and I don't want people to say, hey, how you doing, and not really mean it, and then for me to say, oh, I'm doing fine, and put on that smile. I, I don't want to do that. And you, 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 can, you can wake up that morning, and you can roll over in your bed, and you can say to God, Lord, I don't want to go to church today. Do you think that's going to shock him? you think that's going to surprise him? Um, you can say, God, this person in my life that you are calling me to love, I don't like him. I, I don't want to love them. I know you're calling me to love them. I don't want to love them. I would prefer you to just remove them from my life so that I do not have to deal with them again. You can say that. Um, you, can, you can even say, uh, Lord, I know that there is this thing in my life that I'm doing that is wrong, that it is a sin, that you want me to stop, but I like it. And I don't want to stop. You can, you can tell them that. But, but here's the key. When you say that, when you are that honest with Jesus, you're not doing it defiantly. You're doing it submissively, like Jesus. Uh, you're, you're, you're not saying, I don't want to do this and I'm not going to. Right? You, you don't say, uh, I love this sin and I'm not going to stop. You, say, you don't say, I can't obey and I'm not going to. No, you say, I don't want to, but not my will, but yours. Right? You pray submissively. Jesus has defined discipleship for us. In Mark 8, 34, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And right here, we see him doing it. He's denying himself. He's preparing literally to take up his cross, and he's following the Father. He's saying, this is what I want. I want to not die, but I trust you. Not my will, but yours be done. See, the thing that enables Jesus to do this is that he's got trust and faith in God. Right? Look, look what he calls him in verse 36. He says, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. It just, it just means Father. Father, Abba is just Aramaic for Father, but it's, a, it's kind of a groundbreaking thing that Jesus is doing by consistently referring to God as his Father. He's got this intimate relationship with God. He's his Father, Abba, Father. And he's saying, I trust you. This is who you are to me. You're my Father. So I know that even though I might not want to do this, you're my Father, and you know what's best. So if you're saying, do this, I'll do it. 
Don't want to, but I trust you. I'm going to do it. And, and, and just like Jesus, okay, we can do that too. Because God is our Father as well. Right? Because of the cross, because of what Jesus did for us, now we've been adopted into the same family. And so like, read Romans 8. We can cry out, Abba, Father. The same Spirit that enabled Jesus to call God his Father, the Holy Spirit, is in us and enables us to call God our Father. So we know that he's our Father. And beyond just that factual knowledge, look, Jesus died for us. Right? God the Father gave his Son for us. So if he is willing to give up his Son, if Jesus is willing to give up his life for us, for our eternal destiny, you think he doesn't care about your life today? You think he doesn't care about what's best for you moment by moment by moment? No, he does. Look, he's, he's given you evidence of his love in the cross. And so if, if you feel... If you feel like you can't do whatever it is God is calling you to do, you can tell him that, but then you've got to follow it up with, but I know you're my father. I know you love me. I know that you've demonstrated that love through the cross, and so not what I will, but what you will. I trust you. I trust you. See, we've never faced, and we never will face, the same sort of sorrow that Jesus is facing in this moment. Okay, this is a unique suffering. Jesus alone, of all the people in the world, faced this suffering. He alone faced the full cup of the wrath of God, you know, bearing that sin for us. But we also have sorrow. Okay, we also get overwhelmed by pain and, and suffering. And so what I want you to think about this week, right now, how are you responding to that? Right? You're never going to have to respond to bearing the sins of the world, but in your life, probably right now, you've got some stuff going on. You've got some sorrow in your life, or maybe someone near to you has that sorrow. And that's just as bad, because you can run away from that. You can ignore that. Leave them to hang. Right? What are you going to do? How are you responding to that? How are you responding to the, you know, the news that someone in your family is sick or that you've, someone has lost their job or that you're having trouble finding work or um, you know, that, that, yeah, your relationship's not going well or that you're kind of scared about death or you know, fill in the blank. What's the suffering? What's the thing that's got you overwhelmed that makes you say, uh, I am deeply distressed and troubled, sorrowful, even to the point of death? Okay, what are you doing with that? You trying to run away from it, just get out of it? Just try to change your circumstances and hope it goes away? You ignoring it? Uh, you're saying, well, if I just, just deal with it, just stop whining, just let it, you know, I just got to endure, I just got to be strong. If you're trying to do it in your own strength, whether it's through running away or ignoring it or whatever you're trying to do, you're going to end up like the disciples, making bold, big promises and then failing. Okay. But if you follow the example of Jesus... If you follow the command of Jesus in verse 38, to watch and pray that you may not enter temptation, God will strengthen you. Look what happened with Jesus. He was sorrowful. Crisis. Asked God to take it away. Was honest. Submitted. In verse 41 and 42, he strengthened comes in the third time. Are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. 
The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And from this moment on, Jesus acts the hero. Jesus is what we expect. He, he boldly faces the betrayal by his close friend, Judas, and the, the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin, and the, uh, the injustice of Pilate and the crowds yelling out, crucify, and, and, and the pain of the whipping and the, the, the mocking and going to the cross and the cry of dereliction, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes through all of that, and he is strong. He is calm. He is like a sheep before the shears is silent. He goes. He's locked in. He knows this is what I'm supposed to do. I've dealt with the crisis. I've prayed to God. I've gotten the strength, and I'm going to do it. And he does, all the way to the resurrection. Okay, there's no more waffling. There's no more crisis. He's gotten strengthened. And this is what we have for us. This is, this is, the, this is the path forward for you. When you're suffering, when you're in sorrow, when you're troubled, pray. I know it feels like nothing. Like, I get it. I know it feels like I'm not doing anything. I'm just praying. But what that is is the admission that you're weak and that you need help, that you're not stronger than Jesus, that, in fact, you do need the Lord to strengthen you. And he does. He does. See, Jesus was weak. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to suffer. He didn't run away. He didn't ignore the problem. But he cried out to God, and God heard him. And he strengthened him. And that's what God offers to all of us. So I pray for you and for me that we will do that, that we will continue to become people of prayer, people who believe that prayer is not a waste of time, it's not talking to the ceiling, it's not something unproductive, but in fact it is the heart and soul of the Christian life. It is us crying out and saying, we cannot handle this. Lord, would you be our strength? I, I, Lord, I mean, I mean this. I, I think your word is very clear that we need to respond to suffering and sorrow with prayer. I, I want you to work that into our lives. I, I thank you for the way you're working that into my life. And I pray that more and more it becomes the fabric of, of who we are as a people. A people who cry out to you when we've got problems. Our first response, our first is to take it to you and say, Lord, I am overwhelmed. I don't like this. I don't like what's going on. I don't know how to do what you're calling me to do, but not my will. Yours be done. Entrusting you to strengthen us and give us the, uh, the fortitude, the perseverance, the endurance to obey, to make it through the hard times. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you that you prayed Thank you that, that you have left for us a model of true humanity, that your weakness is a testimony to us that we are not strong. But in our weakness, we can turn to you and find strength. Lord, strengthen our hands today. On the behalf of everyone here today who is in the midst of sorrow and suffering, I pray. I pray that you would bring help and deliverance protection and strength to go on. Father, we ask this of you not because we deserve it, but because of the work of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.